Amen. Well, if you have been with us for the last month or so, then you know that this weekend is Expanded Influence Next Gen Pledge Weekend at ACAC. After we spend time together in the Word of God, studying His life-changing truth, at the conclusion of this service, we're going to begin to receive your financial faith commitments to the ministry vision that God has graciously entrusted to us. I say we're going to begin because if you aren't ready to do that today, you'll have opportunity to do so throughout the remainder of the month of June, and then we'll be announcing the totals in July. Now, this is something we've never done before in my 34 years here. So before we get to the teaching of the Word, to set the stage for it, let me remind you of several things. What we're going to do here today will be a sacred event. And I say that because anything that has its beginning in God's revelation and has as its goal the glory of God being revealed in people's lives is sacred. And what we're going to do here today has its beginning in God revealing His will to us and has as its goal lives changed for His glory. In addition to being a sacred event, what we're going to do here today will be something of a symbolic event. And God places great emphasis upon symbolism. That's what baptism and communion are all about. And as you stand today to make your commitment, it will symbolize your love for God, your desire to see His kingdom come and His will be done. It will symbolize our desire to align our hearts with God's heart. It will symbolize our willingness to walk in faith and believe God for things that we have not yet seen. And it will symbolize our confidence that God rewards those who seek Him and trust Him. In addition, today is going to be a sanctifying event. Now, that's a word we don't use every day, but Scripture uses it frequently. When God talks about being sanctified, He's talking about people who have been set apart so that He can restore them and make them whole again. And this will be a sanctifying event because it will set us apart from the value systems of the world. And it will deepen our commitment to the God who is working our spiritual recovery and setting us free. It's also going to be a spiritually subversive event. It's going to be an act of spiritual warfare. Because as men and women stand to indicate their commitment, they are also indicating their rejection of the prevailing idols and idolatries of American culture, and specifically selfishness and materialism. And it will represent our conscious rejection of demonic fear that hinders God's people, and our commitment to increasing the momentum of God's kingdom in this broken world. I also want to remind you that what we're going to do here today is a privilege. The act of responding to God in faith is an honor, 
And it's an honor reserved for those who have already received Jesus by faith. It's an honor reserved for those who have been transformed by God's grace and who are privileged to play host to God's Holy Spirit every moment of their lives. And finally, what we do here today will be the beginning of a very wise investment. And I say that because the returns on your investment will not be determined by the American economy or the prevailing interest rates. The return on your investment will be determined by God himself. And those returns will be immune to inflation, immune to recession. They'll be eternal in duration, and they aren't limited to finances. Because when you obey God in one area of your life, the effects of your obedience bleed over into every other area of your life, just as when you harbor sin in one area of your life, it bleeds over into every other area of your life. So it's going to impact every aspect of your being. Now, commitments that honor God are the commitments that are revealed in his word and commitments that are kept by faith. And since we want our commitments to be God-honoring, I want to consider the words of the Apostle Paul to a church that was on the wrong side of commitment. They had made a commitment, and they weren't keeping that commitment. The church in ancient Corinth. And in an effort to get them back on track, he told them the story of a church that was on the right side of the very same commitment, the church in Macedonia. And they were on the right side of their commitment, even though economically they lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Macedonia was a very poor area. And as he shared their testimony, Paul was subtly rebuking the Corinthians, but also giving them a gracious invitation to choose a better path. I want you to listen to what he said about the people in Macedonia in chapter 8. And I want you to take note of some of the sharp contrasts in his description of them. I've italicized some of the words, and I'm going to emphasize them with my voice just to reinforce those contrasts, things he couples together that we normally wouldn't put together. Here's what he said as he shared the Macedonian testimony in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Speaking to the Corinthians who had reneged on their commitment, he said, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the churches over in Macedonia. They have suffered a great deal. But in their suffering, their joy was made more than full. See, God puts suffering and joy in the same sentence. Even though they were very poor, they gave very freely. God put poverty and generous giving in the same sentence. I tell you, they gave as much as they could. In fact, they gave even more than they could. And that's impossible unless God is in the mix completely on their own. Nobody was jerking them around. They begged us for the chance to share 
in the serving of the Lord's people in that way. They did more than we expected. And then he got to the key. First, they gave themselves to the Lord. Then they gave themselves to us because that was what God wanted. You see, when you first give yourself to God, all other giving flows naturally. Now, after that inspiring testimony, Paul shifted his focus to the Corinthian church, the wealthy people reneging on their commitment. And here's what he said to them in chapter 9. Each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart, and not reluctantly, and not under pressure, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that because you have enough of everything, you will overflow in every good work. I want to talk to you today about the right side of giving. And I want to remind you that no matter what our topic on any given weekend, God can speak through his word to his people about a hundred different topics. After speaking on this topic in the first service, one of our couples said, God today revealed to us the source of the problem in our marriage and showed us what we need to fix. So if you feel like you don't need any teaching on giving, well, first, you're probably smoking something. But secondly, <laughs> look for something else that God will have for you, all right? the right side of giving. Now let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, you can, through the Spirit, say a thousand different things to a thousand different people. It just reminds us of how intimate and awesome your Spirit is. I pray that you would make the words of my lips acceptable in your sight and that our responses would be appropriate considering who it is that is speaking to us through his word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God together, may the Lord be with you. A wide door for effective service has been opened to me. That's how Paul characterized his situation the first time he wrote to believers in the city of Corinth. And what Paul said about himself could be said about ACAC in this hour of our existence. God has literally set before us wide open doors of opportunity to influence our neighborhood, our city, our region, and the world for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happened in Corinth reminds us that in God's kingdom, opportunities don't translate into actual ministry until they're joined to generosity. It may be generosity of time, emotion, labor, spirit, focus, or finances, but generosity in some form or other is essential if you're going to translate opportunity into ministry. And that's true even when the one desiring to do the ministry is God himself. 
Think of it, when man fell and everything went south and the world was fallen and cursed and this mess had its beginning, that was a wide open door of opportunity for God to minister to his broken creation. But how did God minister to the broken creation? How did he turn the opportunity into ministry? By generosity. John 3:16, God so loved that he gave the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us. So it wouldn't be a stretch to say God's ministry to us began in his generosity. He gave literally everything on our behalf. Now, the Christian community in Corinth had had a wide open door of opportunity set before them. Paul had asked them to be a part of a much-needed ministry. You see, their believing brothers and sisters in Jesus in Jerusalem were suffering horrible, hideous persecution. And because of that, many of them were homeless, most of them were hungry, all of them were impoverished, and they were suffering deeply. And they didn't have any charlatan American evangelists to teach them how they could get a guaranteed return. So they needed real assistance. They needed the assistance of God's people elsewhere. And in response to that crisis, Paul called believers everywhere he had planted churches to take up a special offering for relieving the saints in Jerusalem. Paul said, and I'll see to it that they receive every cent of that offering. Well, in response to his appeal, the Corinthians had responded. In fact, because they were affluent, they promised a large and generous offering. And Paul took their commitment and shared it with other churches as an encouragement and an incentive for others to participate. But affluence can easily compromise generosity and commitment. I think it would be safe to say more faith has been corrupted and short-circuited by affluence than by poverty. And so it was that the affluent Corinthians had not made good on their promise. They were on the wrong side of their commitment. And they still hadn't responded, even though Paul had made several appeals and even sent some people to usher in personal appeals. They were on the wrong side of their commitment because their gifts had been compromised by the notorious Corinthian lifestyle, a headlong, full-speed pursuit of materialism and pleasure and increasing comfort. And Paul saw their failure as a serious contradiction to their identity in Christ and a serious contradiction to the love of God. Now, Paul's words of correction made it clear that the problem with the Corinthians was not a lack of money. The problem was an improper, uh, inappropriate motive for giving. They were attempting to give out of the wrong reason. And so Paul knew the solution wouldn't lie in him dumping a bunch of guilt on them. Shame on you. You should know better. What? You should be ashamed of yourself. Paul didn't do that. 
And here's why. Selfishness isn't defeated by guilt. It's defeated by heart-changing truth, and specifically the truth about grace. You see, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but selfishness is largely immune to guilt. You throw guilt at selfishness, it's like throwing jello at Teflon. It just slides off. <laughs> it doesn't stick. And there's a good reason for that. Both selfishness and guilt come from the same source. The great counterfeiter, Satan. Because guilt is a demonic counterfeit of grace. It's a false motivator. It may motivate giving for a brief season, but it won't sustain giving over the long haul. And it doesn't honor God. See, Satan isn't concerned about people who give out of guilt because he knows they're not going to do it very long. And he knows their attitude in doing it will actually reinforce his lies about God. Because if we give out of guilt, there's no joy in our giving. And if there's no joy in your giving, there's no glory for God in your giving. Your giving doesn't honor your Creator and your Savior. It actually casts Him in a negative light and reinforces the lies that Satan peddles about Him. So guilt is a demonic counterfeit of grace. I grew up with preaching that really emphasized on, really emphasized guilt. It didn't change anybody. It just left us with four flat tires in the ditch by the side of the road feeling hopeless. Paul knew the testimonies, stories of what God has done in other people's lives can often change what sermons cannot change. Because sometimes we need to see truth fleshed out in another human being before we can embrace it and understand it ourselves. So when Paul wanted to encourage grace in the Corinthians, he pointed them to the testimony of people who were walking in grace, the impoverished believers in Macedonia. And as he did, he talked about giving as a privilege, as, it, as the fruit of a passion. He talked about it in terms of purpose. He didn't talk in terms of guilt. And he certainly didn't talk in terms of greed. And the testimony of the Macedonians made it clear that giving that honors God flows out of the Spirit, not emotional reactions to appeals or pressure. And I say that because Scripture clearly calls us to imitate God, to act like God and do things God's way. And God didn't give because somebody showed him some heart-rendering pictures and appealed to his emotions. And God certainly didn't give because somebody put the squeeze on him. And God certainly didn't give because he was feeling guilty or feeling like he had an obligation. God gave freely out of his desire to bless, out of his grace. 
And so the people who looked like him, the Macedonians, did the same thing. Paul didn't beg them to give. They begged Paul for the privilege of participating in the offering. Now, those are people after God's own heart. See, one commonly overlooked reason why God wants our giving to be rooted in grace rather than in guilt or in greed or any other inappropriate alternative is because the greatest commandment given to us is to love God with every fiber of your being. We are called to love God. Well, guilt, lies, formulas, and manipulation are totally inappropriate for a love relationship. If God tried to motivate us through guilt and formulas, if he tried to manipulate us, or if we act in manipulative fashion, or if we give only out of guilt or because somebody's given us some lame formula, we're not acting in a loving fashion. You see, love by its very definition has to be expressed willingly, not begrudgingly not in lifeless fulfillment of some imagined obligation. Love doesn't ask, what's the least I can do for my spouse? I mean, what is the bare bones minimum I can do here? Hmm? And love doesn't bless its spouse because it feels guilty. And love doesn't bless its spouse because somebody's putting the squeeze on it. Love doesn't ask, what do I have to do? Love says, what's the best I can do? And can I do even more than that? And that's what God wants from us when it comes to giving. So when the Corinthians found themselves on the wrong side of their commitment and the wrong side of giving, Paul didn't grumble about their lack of giving. Paul grieved over their lack of spiritual maturity. He knew that not only were the people in Jerusalem going to miss out on their offering, but he knew that the Corinthians were going to miss out on Christian maturity and real freedom and grace. So he pointed them to people who demonstrated a better way. The Macedonians, they understood that grace-motivated giving is both voluntary and cheerful. And you know, those two things go hand in hand. Because if you give, if I give, simply because we feel pressured, well, then it's very likely we're not going to be very cheerful about the whole situation. And that's why Paul reminded the Corinthians, giving can't be commanded. Nobody can command you to give. Anybody that tries to command you to give, you should kick them to the curb immediately. Giving can't be commanded. It can only be commended, held up, celebrated as an example of love. Celebrated in a way that makes it seem more appealing. That's what Paul was doing when he told the Corinthians the story of the Macedonians. Look what these dudes are doing. And isn't that awesome? And don't you want some of that action? Don't you want to get in on that? 
And that's what we hope to do over the next three years. We're going to make channels whereby you can quickly share with us your stories of how your commitment was challenged and then God came through for you. And we want to get those stories out in print. We want to get them out on the app. We want to get them out on our website so that giving will be commended. Never, never commanded. Just last weekend, I believe it was after this service, one of our couples shared a story. They, they had sought the Lord and made their commitment so that they would be ready for this month. And right on the heels of making their commitment, their dryer died. And they hadn't planned that. We seldom do plan when our dryer is going to die. Okay. And they didn't have budget for the new dryer. But within a one or two day period, a friend called who had come into a washer and dryer and now had more dryers than they needed and wanted to know, did they know anybody that could use a virtually new dryer and, and they upgraded at no cost to themselves. You know, see, the challenge was so typical of Satan and the response and the provision was so typical of God. Okay? And, and so we want to share those, those kinds of stories because now they have more than a dryer. They have a testimony. I mean, you can't go to Sears and say, I want the dryer testimony package. Okay? <laughs> Only God can give you that package. Okay? Jesus had earlier uncovered a principle of giving that often goes undetected. In John 12, 24, he said, unless a seed fall into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And Paul said essentially the same thing, only in different words. He told the Corinthians, grace-motivated giving produces life in other people. When your giving is motivated by God's grace, it will produce a harvest that is consistent with God's grace. And that harvest is always people coming to faith in Jesus and their lives being changed. And think of it, if your giving changes just one person's life, and it'll change far more than that, but if it changes just one person's life, how will that play out over the future? I've shared with you my dad was raised totally secular, no knowledge of God, and never read one word of Scripture. Knew nothing about God. And after surviving D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge and all the rest, he came home and had his first encounter with the Word of God because somebody in the Gideon's ministry had invested in placing a Bible in the nightstand in the Veterans Hospital in Butler, Pennsylvania, of the room my dad occupied. And God healed him of post-combat stress disorder. God saved him. And Dad went on to lead 3,000 people to faith in Jesus. Amen. And his children all knew the Lord. And his grandchildren all know the Lord. And his great-grandchildren all know the Lord. So you tell me, you change one life, and how can that play out? over time. Those are returns you'll never get from Wall Street. Early Alliance people were part of a mission alliance known as the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Early Alliance people 
lived on the right side of giving and the right side of commitment. They translated the open doors of opportunity into ministry by grace. I think of one example. There were a number of young men in the early alliance who heard about the fact that there was no witness of Christ's gospel in the West African nation of the Congo. So they determined they were going to go and share Jesus. Now, they did so at a time when the treatment of tropical diseases was virtually non-existent. So if you contracted a tropical disease, you were as good as dead because you couldn't come back to the States and have them treated because they didn't know anything about tropical diseases. They didn't know what they were treating. So when these young men went, there were seven of them all, they knew they were almost guaranteed they were going to die. And of the seven, six died in Africa of tropical diseases. One returned home for treatment. But because they generously planted their lives in the ground of the Congo, today believers in Alliance churches alone in the Congo number in the hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of people will worship in the Congo region today because of those young men who generously gave their lives. And I think they already know that. Meanwhile, back in the States, in the early alliance, there were numerous business owners that did reverse giving. 90% of their business profits went to the work of the Lord, and they lived on 10%. And guess what? All of their businesses thrived. And they adopted a motto, all for Jesus. And they made it more than a motto. They made it a lifestyle. That's why today, even though Alliance people in the U.S. only number about 600,000, around the world we number over 7 million. And in most places, in many places, we are the largest body of evangelical believers in those nations, Vietnam, Indonesia, Uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa, on and on. And it's because people, not under compulsion, not under pressure, not because somebody uh, worked them up to a frenzy, just because they understood grace, they gave, and God translated their generosity into ministry. We've got a chance to continue that legacy. So today as you stand to submit your pledge, don't give out of guilt. And we're not going to pressure you to give. We're hoping you'll just be expressing your love for God and giving evidence of His supernatural work at grace in your life and taking another step toward aligning your heart with His heart. You see, the reason God loves a cheerful giver is because He is one. One of the most profound statements of Scripture is that it pleased God to offer Jesus as the sacrifice for you and for me. It pleased him to do that for us. He is a cheerful giver. And we get the opportunity to be in his spitting image. We have the opportunity to look like our daddy to be chips off the old eternal block and to reflect his character.
So before we do that, let me pray briefly, and you unite your hearts with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for being a cheerful giver. You owed us nothing. You were under no obligation. In your great love and grace, you gave at a level we can never imagine so that we might have new life. Now, Lord, we don't want to hoard the blessing. We want to pass it forward. And today, as we make commitments to pass that blessing forward, Father, I pray that there'll be no hint of guilt. There have been no promises of a new house and a new car or any other such nonsense. There's just been a simple declaration of your will and our need to generously participate in it. And I pray that not only our gifts would honor you, but more importantly, I pray that our hearts would honor you and that everyone would do what you've led them to do. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.